1: That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20.
0: It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the
1: sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 99. This week, I would like to announce the release of the first episode in our next series of Patreon-exclusive episodes. These will cover the development and usage of railways during the war. Railroads are what let the war happen and continue for as long as it did. There was simply no other way in the early 20th century that war could happen on the scale of the First World War. There was just too much stuff to move around. How each country developed and used its rails is an interesting and different story for all of them. And if you'd like to find out more, you can head over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to find out how. Just like our new supporter Christopher did last week. Thank you, Christopher. Also, if you have a few minutes and would like to help out the podcast... Head over to historyofthegreatwar.com slash survey to fill out a new podcast survey. It's only about 10 questions that should take less than a minute to answer, and it would really help me out. This week is our 11th Chronicling the Battle of the Somme, and we move on to the next set of attacks during the last eight days of July, which would be launched by the 4th Army with the assistance of the Reserve Army under General Goff. This would be the first attack that would involve the Australians, and would be the first major effort by the French since July 1st. We will then close out this episode by putting a nice bow on July, by doing a bit of a review of what a very costly month it had been. This is the 8th and final episode on July 1916, and I feel pretty comfortable saying that it may be the best covered month of the entire war. The next attack would eventually go forward on July 23rd, but Rowlinson initially did not want to wait that long, and instead hoped to make it a continuation of the attack on July 14th, by launching it just a few days later. With the disorganization caused by the mid-month attack, though, these plans proved to be impossible, and he therefore decided to postpone the attack a week to July 22nd, from which it would then be delayed another day. During this delay, there would initially be some of those small piecemeal attacks that we talked about during the first two weeks of July. However, at some point in the process, Rawlinson changed his mind and called these off. He wanted to make sure that his army was completely prepared for the coming attack, and it was also becoming obvious that the Germans were no longer in any danger of losing ground to these small attacks, because their positions were solidifying and not weakening. This was accomplished by an infusion of German reinforcements that made anything less than a major attack even more pointless than usual, since they had the reinforcements to rush to any small piece of the front that was actually threatened. Because of the hiatus in the attacks, the Somme Front was probably quieter than it had been since June. This respite was a smart move by Rawlinson, because his men really needed the rest, and because the next set of German positions that were going to be captured or hopefully captured in the next attack were nestled on the reverse slope of some of the ridges, and this meant that they were almost entirely concealed from direct observation. This meant that there were very few easy wins to be had, and it also made it more difficult to properly direct artillery fire. This gap in observation could have been made up for with aerial observation, but that took longer, even during the best of times. And these were not the best of times to be flying around, because there was a good amount of inclement weather that rolled through between the 14th and the 23rd that kept all the planes grounded. One mistake that I've found that I've made during these some episodes, and one that I just realized while writing this episode is that I have not done justice to the air battles over the Somme. The notes on it sort of got lost in the shuffle in all of this uh, sort of research. And because of this, I've decided to move the bulk of the coverage on the air war over the Somme to a later episode, where I can really dig in and do it justice, probably in a larger story of the air war as a whole. However, I thought right now would be a good time to give a quick overview of some of the British efforts so far. Much like over Verdun, the British and Germans were having a battle in the air over the battlefields that were being contested in July. Up until the end of July, and even beyond, the British were ruling the air, creating a crisis of confidence in the German infantry, as they saw in the sky full of British fighters, bombers, and observation planes. This is similar to what was happening at Verdun, uh, with the Germans or the French sort of ruling the air at various times. On the 20th of July, one German soldier would record that, quote, Our infantry up front have come gradually to the belief that they have been abandoned. We cried once more and in vain for some help against the aircraft, end quote. The British had achieved this air superiority through a concerted, purposeful, and continuous effort. During the planning phases for the attack, six goals were set out for the British effort in the air. Number one was aerial reconnaissance. 2. Aerial Photography, 3. Observation and Directing Artillery, 4. Bombing, 5. Contract, contact Patrols to support the infantry, and number 6. Air Combat against the German Army Air Services. They were able to accomplish these objectives through a daily effort, where every single day their planes went in the air and every single day they engaged with the Germans regardless of the situation. This constant pressure took a toll on the British airmen and airplanes, but this disregard for losses was able to put enough pressure on the Germans that the British achieved almost complete air superiority, and even more importantly, it kept the German fighters off of the other British aircraft. Along with constantly engaging the Germans, they were able to take over 19,000 photos and drop 292 tons of bombs. These are very large numbers, and it doesn't account for all of the artillery observation that they did. In his article, The British Air Campaign During the Battle of the Somme, April-November to 1916, a Pyrrhic victory, Thomas G. Bradbeer would say, During the three months of fighting, the air service had been increasingly active and efficient. Fighting was not confined to operations on the ground. Much went on in the air. Gradually and surely, our air service established a moral and material superiority over the enemy, though at the cost of many gallant young lives. While in general they had done very well, that could not overcome the problems around weather. At this point, there was really no such thing as an all weather aircraft, and because of this, they would not be able to help with the efforts on July 23rd as much as was hoped there was an effort to make sure that the artillery replicated its performance on the 14th when the attack went forward. And this started on July 16th, when Haig sent a message to all of the artillery commanders that said, quote, It is of the first importance that in all cases infantry should be instructed to advance right under the field artillery barrage, which should not uncover the first objective until the infantry are close to it, even within 50 or 60 yards. End quote. Finally, the British are sort of sorting out their creeping barrages. The weather was one complication, but another was once again having to coordinate with the French. This was a serious problem, and even though the French said that they would be ready to attack on the 23rd, on the 22nd, they would let the British know that they would have to delay their part in the coming effort. It was clear that the French did not want to be rushed, which could have caused the attack to go off half-cocked and cost them more lives. And The delay in French effort meant that the British had to shift some of their plans, and this caused confusion in both the 4th and Reserve armies, as small delays and alterations were made right up to the last moment to try and compensate for the lack of French help. When I say the last moment, I I mean maybe even past the last moment, because there were several instances of these messages not getting up to the troops at the front line in time, This created a situation where, along the front line, the various attacks were spread out over the course of five hours, instead of all happening at the same time. This certainly did not help anybody's chance of success. One new feature of this attack was the so-called Reserve Army, under the command of General Goff. This army had been in the area behind the front since the start of the attacks on July 1st, and if everything would have went well on that day... They would have been sent forward to continue in the attack. Because nothing had went as planned, they were instead now going to be used in an attack to get the offensive going again. Their primary objective was the village of Pagere, which had been an objective for seemingly every attack so far, but at least by this point it was right in front of the British lines. It was critical that it be captured, because it was so critical to the German front that its loss could endanger the entirety of the German second line. It would also greatly assist in compromising the German positions on the Thiepville Spur, which had already been such a thorn in the side of British troops. For the capture of this critical objective, Goff decided to use some new arrivals on the scene, the 1st Australian Division. This division was made up of Gallipoli veterans, who had spent the last six months since the evacuation receiving and integrating reinforcements and then training up for their Western Front debut. The bombardment for the attacks began at precisely 7 p.m. on July 22nd. For the 4th Army, the main goal was in front of the 30th Division in the form of the village of Guimont. The main task of capturing the village fell on the men of the 19th Manchesters, and their advance began at 3.30 a.m. They were able to make some early progress, at least initially. Here is Sergeant A.K. Patterson of the Rifle Brigade describing what happened. We had to take six German lines, and it was plain for all to see. There was a sunken road, then there was another line of trenches, and then there was a pillbox, which was the entrance to the line of deep dugouts, and a machine gun was blazing away from it. But the bombers took care of that, and on we went. Every time we got to the next objective, there were fewer and fewer men. While the British were slowly losing men, the Germans, and their newly arriving reinforcements, were able to launch a devastating counterattack late in the morning. The counterattack hit the Manchesters like a sledgehammer, and pretty much completely destroyed the units manning the first forward positions. The German Tide, combined with some fantastic artillery work from the German guns, managed to keep continuous pressure on the Manchesters and the units around them, until they were pushed all the way back to their start lines. Unfortunately, even this result was better than most of the attacks for the 4th Army.
0: so come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor a revolutionary, and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change but it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: To the north of the 4th Army, the Reserve Army also joined in the attack, with the Australians spearheading the drive towards Pojère, while other units attacked the rest of the ridge. The Australians crawled out into no man's land, starting at about midnight, and there they had a similar setup to what had been used on July 14th, with marking tapes telling them where to go and how far away the German lines were. They would then wait a few hours for the attack to start. When the time for the attack did come, it probably would have been difficult to hear the whistles that the officers used to signal the attack, but the men did a fine job of just following the lead of the officers as they jumped up and started running for their objectives. The Australians did a fine job, capturing the outer trenches in the first rush and then managing to slowly push their way through the village. Unfortunately, the attacks on either side of the Australians were less than successful, Which meant that the the Australians rapidly found themselves in a salient out into the German lines. They frantically began consolidating their positions as the German artillery began to focus in on them. All the Australians could do was try and weather the steel storm dropping on them in everly increasing intensity. Interestingly enough, at this point, the Germans did not instantly counterattack, which had been their habit so far, and instead they just kept hitting the village with artillery while massing troops behind the front. It was not until the morning of the 25th, almost two days since the start of the attack, that the counterattack would finally be launched. What was left of the 1st Division held their ground, for the most part, losing a few positions here and there, until they were finally relieved by the 2nd Australian Division. The 1st Division, in their time at the front, had managed to take and retain the village, but they had only been able to do so at a cost of 5,000 casualties. The 2nd Division had a difficult time to look forward to as well, and they were under constant fire until the 29th, when they launched their own attack. This was another of those small attacks that was not properly supported by the rest of the front, and this resulted in an attack that made very few gains that actually ended up mattering, and even those were quickly lost to local German counterattacks. You sort of know the drill with this so far. The official Australian history of the battle would say, quote, Although most Australian soldiers were optimists, and many were opposed on principle to voicing or even harboring grievances, it is not surprising if the effect on some intelligent men was a bitter conviction that they were being uselessly sacrificed. Quote. This would be a constant refrain from the Australians and their histories on the Western Front, and really all of the Commonwealth forces. So look forward to a lot of discussion about whether or not the non-British units were used incorrectly in their attacks. For what it is worth, the Germans had a very high opinion of the Australians, and would describe them as sturdy lads, with gold in their pockets, unsophisticated son of grazers and heirs to the land. What their fathers had brought to the wild colony lay in their bearing and eyes, and they were not to be taken lightly. I believe the gold in their pockets line in this, re- in this quote is in reference to the fact that the Australians were paid significantly better than other British troops. On the French side, their attack would be launched late. It would only be launched on their section of the front to the north of the river as well, not to the south. It would be what I will call unremarkable, and it did not really accomplish anything. However, during July, there were some interesting developments for the French. One benefit of some of the French successes was the documents that they had been able to capture that detailed the difficulties that the Germans were having countering the ever-involving Allied tactics. Here is a quote from one of the reports uh, on this information. Quote, in its most recent orders, the German command constantly revisits the necessity in the defensive of occupying the first line with small numbers of troops and placing units in echelon and in depth in order to reserve the means of making local counterattacks. End quote. One issue for the French was the constant friction between their goals for the offensive on the Somme. When the plans for the attack changed in May or June, and the French made it clear that their goals in the attack were to support the British effort. And in July, this was really still their goal. However, as the offensive developed, it seemed clear that if they wanted to make any actual progress in these attacks that they were doing, they needed to attack south of the river, where most of their success on July 1st had been. But to attack south of the river... Forfeited most of their benefit to the British There was a river between them There was French lines to the north of the river between them And the answer to this would have been easy If they actually trusted the British to execute on their attacks I'm sure the French would have kept going to the north of the river But by late July Foch and Joffre had lost most of their trust in the British They, they just didn't believe that the British could accomplish anything After seeing them fail This type of push and pull of what the French wanted to do and what was best for them for the battle and what was best for the British with their help would be a constantly shifting equation that we'll be revisiting in the episodes ahead. Overall, July had been a hard month for everyone involved with the fighting. The Germans had lost 160,000 men, while the British and French lost a combined 200,000. For all of these casualties, the line had moved a maximum of three miles from where it had stood at the beginning, and on both sides, there really was not the tools to launch another comparable effort in the near-term future. On the British side, they no longer had the numbers of unworn artillery guns and the mountains of artillery ammunition that they had used on July 1st, and the Germans were continuing to improve their tactics, but even this only partially made up for the fact that their positions were a far cry from what they had been. Along most of the line, the Germans no longer had a nice, comfy shelter that they had enjoyed for the first half of 1916, and for the crucial first day. And this required them to adjust how they were defending their positions that they did have. They made these adjustments, and it would pay dividends. It was the British that had trouble trying to learn the right lessons from the fighting so far, as Peter Hart explains. Quote, the atmosphere of optimism engendered by the dramatic successes of 14 July was to prove the cruelest false dawn of the whole Somme campaign. During the next few weeks, it seemed as if every lesson that might have been learned from that success, the devastating use of mass artillery in support of an attack on a reasonably wide front using imaginative infantry tactics, had been deliberately and perversely cast to the winds and replaced with the tactics of a lunatic asylum. If this was a learning curve, then it was a sad travesty of geometry." As always here, I think Hart's being a little too hard on the British and maybe just going for a bit of dramatic flair with his words, but the general meaning is correct. The British still had not quite sorted out how to attack on the battlefield in 1916 or on the Somme. They had it for the attack on the 14th but that was due to a specific set of circumstances that by the end of the month were already gone and there was a new set in its place. By the last day of July, there had already been three distinct phases of the fighting. There was the July 1st attacks and the days immediately following, where the Germans were very much off balance and horribly overmanned both in infantry and artillery. This then led into the period of confusion leading up to the large attacks on July 14th, when the Germans still had not recovered and were a bit frantic in their attempts to hold back the British attacks. However, after the attack on the 14th, the whole situation changed yet again, because the Germans brought in reinforcements. This allowed them to solidify their positions, and it also meant that they were no longer confused or strung out, and now they could mount effective defenses and large counterattacks against almost any British attack no matter how big they made it, or as big as they could make it the British seemed to have had difficulty adjusting to these various scenarios. For example, at the end of the month, they still had not figured out how to deal with the fact that the Germans were no longer heavily manning the first set of trenches, and were instead spreading out their defense, with machine guns and defensive positions placed in shell holes already created by earlier attacks. This meant that the British had to bombard a much more widespread and diverse area. They couldn't just focus on one little tiny strip of ground. This was just one problem that they had to resolve, though, if they wanted to reignite the attacks in August. On the long list of topics not generally discussed in Histories, that I'm sort of a fan of highlighting if you haven't noticed, I love interesting cool topics, here is Staff Sergeant James Kane, as he describes the Herculean task of battlefield salvage during the closing days of July. Quote, there were 50,000 rifles laying out on the battlefield. The pioneers used to go and fetch them when the conditions permitted. They came to us in open trucks, and we had to clear them quickly. We had two rifles every three seconds, day after day, and we were working flat out. One day, I had 32,000 rifles pass through my hands if the rifles were all right we would toss them onto this waiting truck and they went straight down the line to the workshops where they were checked for bent barrels and any faults and then they were issued to the troops and straight back up to the line End quote. now this is the only quote i've seen i think in all of my reading about battlefield salvage and it makes sense there were there was a lot of casualties there were a lot of deaths and wounded who obviously wouldn't bring their rifles back with them and finding them was sort of a boon for people trying to keep rifles in people's hands. So the thought of actually recovering them is a scene I have not read about before, which is why I find Sergeant Kane's uh, account so interesting. One thought that I'm sure both sets of infantry could agree on, and probably the commanders as well, was that July was over and good riddance to it. Little could they know that there would be three more months of fighting to come. Now, as this episode is over, I hope you will join me next episode as we celebrate episode 100 of the podcast with a listener question extravaganza, which I'm hoping will be quite entertaining. Thank you for listening.